everyone. Welcome to episode 152 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have a couple quick things to talk about before we get into our regular segments. One is about the newsletter. Yes, we heard from a listener who asked if we are still sending out a newsletter because she hasn't gotten one since the fall. And yes, we are. It comes out every month. So if you haven't been receiving them, you might want to check your spam folder could be in there and then also add us to your contacts so just put bookcougars at gmail.com in your contacts you know you should be receiving our newsletter again if you are still having issues just reach out send us an email yeah and we usually send it towards the end of the month just so you know we get it in under the wire (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) and we're going to do something different on our patreon page we have a giveaway for patreon only Thank you to all of you Patreons out there, but we're also going to give you a chance to become a Patreon if you want before we do the giveaway, which will be on April 6th. Yes, we would love for you to join our Patreon community. We appreciate anything that you can contribute to help us keep talking. That's right. It really does help. And just a reminder, if you become a Patreon and you decide you can't be one anymore, it's super easy to come and go as you need to. Right, or up and down, whatever amount you want to donate. We've had people do that as their financial situation fluctuates. Right. Yeah. So Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading The Gilded Page, The Secret Lives of Medieval Manuscripts. I think I mentioned this last episode is my upcoming book club read. It's by Mary Wellesley. Just came out in late 2021. Luckily for me, the book club host had a bit of a scheduling snafu, so we didn't meet, and uh, we'll be meeting in April, so I have a little bit more time to read this one. I'm really enjoying it. So it is, it's The Secret Life of Medieval Manuscripts, and the author talks about how manuscripts were made, there's some of that, in the very beginning, and then there are different chapters dealing with different books. So there's discoveries, near disasters, uh, patrons, artists, scribes, authors and scribes, hidden authors. And then there's also a epilogue called the death of the manuscript. Mm. So I am still in the I well, I'm in the discovery section right now. And there are two really fascinating things, at least fascinating for me, one of them was the book of Marjorie Kemp, which is the first known autobiographical memoir in English. Marjorie of Kemp was a woman who was married traditionally to a man and had a whole bunch of kids and had a religious experience and was able to convince her husband to no longer have sexual relations so she could pursue her passion in her faith. And so her memoir, I've not read the whole thing. I've read bits and pieces of it. It's been anthologized a lot in various women's studies classes and in some theology classes I've had. Her book was almost lost forever. So the story goes that Captain Maurice Butler Bowden, he was well known in the Royal Navy. At the time that he was a young midshipman, he was at home in the family estate playing ping pong with some friends with his dad. And somebody stepped on the ping pong ball and they were looking for another ping pong ball. And they were digging in this cabinet and couldn't find a ping pong ball. But they had all these like musty little leather books. And the dad was just like, you know, I'm going to burn these, you know, bleep things. And uh, the son looked at them and he said, you know, dad, would you mind if I 
had somebody come and look at these. I know someone who's an expert on these things, and he's like, yeah, the guy wants to. They're just old ledgers. So it turns out that his friend who came, Albert Vandeput is the man's name, who was a medieval historian at the Victoria and Albert Museum. He came and looked it over and said, may I take this and have it examined further? And it turned out to be the lost book, Marjorie Cap. That was in 1934 when that happened. So that blows my theory that memoir is a new genre. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, Marjorie kind of started it in a way. She couldn't read or write. So she had people scribe for her. The first scribe didn't work out that well. The second one was apparently a little bit better. The writer of this book, The Gilded Page, doesn't go too much into detail but you do get this sense of like, oh, my gosh, you know, it could have been lost forever. And I should say Marjorie Kemp's dates were circa 1373 to 1438. So wow. that definitely is an old piece of writing. I think that would be something I might check out a little bit more in the future. The other thing that she talked about, and just real quick, everyone's heard of the Great Library of Alexandria and how it burned and all of these wonderful things were destroyed. And it was actually a much slower process than that. It didn't just suddenly go up in flames or be burnt down. But one of the ways that parchment came about was because Ptolemy, who was one of the people responsible for filling the Library of Alexandria with scrolls of papyrus, he was very competitive. And there was a guy named Eumenes who was creating his own library in competition. So Ptolemy ordered that no one could make papyrus, some kind of rule like that. So this Eumenes guy is the one who created parchment, which is animal skin, using that for leaves of books and writing on, you know, sharing stories that way. So I thought that was a fascinating invention based on necessity yeah. because of someone else's desire to control things. Right. So anyway, I promise not to go on in detail after I finish this book. I'm sure there are going to be a lot more interesting stories in here. Again, that's The Gilded Page, The Secret Lives of the Medieval Manuscripts by Mary Wellesley. I'm reading Hurricane Girl, which is the new book by Marcy Dermansky. This book comes out on June 14th. Whew, it is a wild ride. I've read some reviews, which is unlike me when I'm in the middle of reading a book, but I was like, what am I reading? <laughs> and that's what some of the reviews say. <laughs> like, what was this book I just read? So it's about a young woman who is in a bad relationship in LA. She's in the film world. She decides to leave her boyfriend, Keith. She wants to swim. So she goes and buys a beach house in North Carolina and the first week that she owns it, there's a hurricane and her entire house is blown down and disappears. Thanks. So she's sitting on the front doorsteps and a news team comes by and says, hey, can we interview you? She says, sure. Later that night, she's trying to figure out where to go and what to do. So she goes to a bar to have a drink and comes into contact with the, the guy who was the cameraman. And then the next thing we know, she's waking up in the morning and something really terrible happens. And that's all I'm going to say. Because I'm still reading it. Is it what? Okay. I, I won't ask too many questions, but like, I mean, I'm, I'm making a big assumption about the bad thing that happened. It's something violent that happens to her. And that's all I'm going to say. All right. Because I'm going to talk about it again. And it's not out until June. Okay. <laughs> 
But Marcy Dramansky is a great writer. Her books are super short. She has a backlist. Check her out. I highly recommend you read her. I love her books. Very cool. I don't think I've read anything by her. I think I came to find out about her through Roxane Gay. Okay. Well, the other book I'm reading is one that's not coming out until May. It is The Murder of Mr. Wickham by Claudia Gray. This is a pseudonym for the writer Amy Vincent, who's written a lot of YA. This is her first adult novel, I believe. And The Murder of Mr. Wickham is, of course, one of the villains in Jane Austen. And if any character is going to be murdered, he's a good choice, Mr. Wickham. (laughs) Um, The blurb on the book calls it a thrilling whodunit. But for me, it's not thrilling. It's more of a slow burn kind of thing. It's actually over 400 pages. I didn't realize that I'm reading an advanced digital copy. I'm at the 56% mark right now. And something just happened that I'm like, okay, all right, yeah. I I was just at the point where I was thinking like, "Mm, maybe I'm just going to skim to the end, which I never do, just to see who did it. Um, But then something comes up. I'm like, okay. Now you're in it. I'm going to keep letting this unfold. Because the thing is, so she takes all of the characters of the Jane Austen novels, not all of them, but the main characters, and brings them together at a house party. That's, you know, a month-long house party back then when people would come and visit. Mr. Knightley and Emma from Emma are married, and they're the ones throwing this month-long house party. And Mr. Wickham was not invited. He's actually caused so many of the characters in Jane Austen land to become financially harmed by his latest financial endeavor that has gone south for everyone except for Mr. Wickham. He stands to make a lot of money off of this endeavor. He's just the bad guy. He doesn't really care. This is what he did. It's completely legal. You lost the money and you owe me money now. And he comes uninvited and he's put into one of the servants' quarters to stay, which of course is offensive. And as the title says, it's about the murder of Mr. Wickham. So that's not a spoiler. I won't say how he (laughs) dies or when he dies. But all of the characters that you love in Jane Austen are there. The Darcy's are there. In the very beginning in the intro, the author explains that she kind of messed with the timeline a little bit so that, you know, couples and marriages and things make sense, at least according to like the publishing and writing chronology of Jane Austen's novels. Two of the main characters who are the ones who are the main sleuths, it's the son of Darcy and Lizzie from Pride and Prejudice, and then the daughter of Catherine and Henry from Northanger Abbey, Juliet. They're teenagers. They're the ones who are the amateur sleuths trying to put things together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And from Sense and Sensibility, Brandon and Marianne are married. They're there. And they're, all of their relationships are having struggles at this point for a variety of reasons. Some of them you don't know. And so the Brandon-Marianne line is one that I'm really curious to find out a bit more about. So more to come on that. Again, that's The Murder of Mr. Wickham by Claudia Gray coming out May 3rd from Vintage. I'm a fan of Jane Austen, but I'm a lightweight I've read the novels. I enjoyed them. I've read a couple of them multiple times. I've seen the adaptations, but I'm not a hardcore Janeite, as they are called. So it'll be interesting to hear the reception that the novel gets. Sure. 
So, Emily, what have you just read? So I did finish the audiobook, Both and A Life in Many Worlds by Huma Abedin. I loved this memoir so much. I did it all on audio. It was over 20 hours. <laughs> it is not for the faint of heart. If you're not interested in politics or, you know, memoir in general, you probably would not enjoy this book. I loved the political aspect of it, kind of being on the inside of all these different campaigns and lives of Hillary Rodden Clinton that Huma aided her. She came in as an intern into the White House when Hillary was the first lady and then followed her through all of her walks of life from senator to running for president twice to being secretary of state. She told lots of funny stories. But then the second half of the book is also about her falling in love with Anthony Weiner, who was a politician in his own right, who had a very promising future, but had a very big problem with sex addiction, which she didn't know about. She married him. They had a child together. He was and is a doting father. So she does talk about that. And then he also did go to prison for a couple of years. So the memoir covers that terrible time and her having to explain to their son where his father went and more. So she covers a lot of territory with this book. And I really thought it was good. It has a lot of detail. There were a few times where I was like, oh, this could be 15 hours without some of this detail. (laughs) But it was interesting. I do recommend it. And I did listen to it on audio. And she does narrate. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I don't think I realized that he went to prison. I did not know that either. He went to prison for a couple years. Mm. Yeah. And he tried to kind of get back into politics and failed again. So I think he's a consultant now. And she even in the acknowledgments thanks him for a couple of things, which I thought was really brave and... In interviews I've seen with her now, she says, this is the father of my son. That's how she refers to him. Yeah. And will always be. You know? mm-hmm. So again, it's called Both and A Life in Many Worlds by Huma Abedin. Well, I did finish my audiobook that I've been listening to, Run, Rose, Run by Dolly Parton and James Patterson. Really enjoyable story. Like I said in the last episode, it's not that much of a gripping mystery. It's more an interesting story about this upcoming country western singer and then uh, the famous superstar who befriends her and how their lives become entwined and how one mentors the other and helps her and then you do find out what happened to the to the young up-and-coming country star like you know that something bad happened to her so you do have the reveal towards the end about that and really the tension for me was more about that first chapter starts with her jumping off a balcony at a hotel in Las Vegas. So the tension for me was all about getting there. How did she get here and what's happening? And you find out for sure. And um, I really enjoyed the country music history bits and then just the behind the scenes, what it's like to be a country music performer in Nashville. So you know a lot of this is authentic because Dolly is involved. And then there are some funny Dollyisms, you know, how she's known for turning a phrase. One of them that I wrote down was that somebody was ugly as a box of armpits. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a visual. Yeah, that's some serious imagery right there. Yeah, yeah. So if you're a Dolly Parton fan or James Patterson fan, you'll definitely want to pick this one up. But if you were looking at it just for like a thriller mystery it probably won't satisfy in that way 
Again, that's Run Rose Run by Dolly Parton and James Patterson, available now. And I think I just read somewhere that, is it Reese Witherspoon's going to make it into a movie or a television series? Yeah, I've heard it was up for movie adaptation. I didn't know who. Okay. But it would restar in it, or is it her production company? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. I could see her like trying to be a Dolly-type character. Yeah. Yeah, well, she won the Academy Award for Walk the Line, right? That was a good movie. That was. I really liked that one. Yeah. yeah. She's got some talent, that race. That's for sure. I finished the book Girl in Ice by Erica Ferencik. This was a thriller, which you explained to me is about the clock is ticking and something's going to happen. This is about Val, who's a linguist, and her specialty is in dead Nordic languages. She's a very quiet, anxiety woman. She's kind of lives her own life. She has a job, but she goes to her job and comes home. She doesn't really want to be too out in the world, but she's revered for this specialty that she has. So she is asked to go to an outpost, like a scientific outpost in Greenland, because a young girl has thawed out and is speaking a language that nobody can identify. So... Is she an ancient girl who has been on ice? Yes. And she actually wakes up after all these years and starts talking. And can that happen? I don't know, people. (laughs) I have no idea. But in the book, it's like there's so much other stuff going on and it's so exciting. And I know that the author did a ton of research and went to Greenland. So I'm trusting the process, as some people say you should. It sounds cool. Yeah. And this woman, Val, had a twin brother who passed away, and he had been at this scientific outpost. And she has some question. They were told that he committed suicide, but she's a little suspicious of that. So she goes to the outpost kind of as an anxiety person with these feelings about this. And then this relationship develops with this young girl who cannot communicate, but she is trying so hard to communicate. Mm-hmm. She's drawing, she's using visuals, she's speaking her native tongue, and Val is not making much progress with it. And the gentleman who knew her brother and is the head scientist seems a little off. And there's a woman that's working with him that seems a little off. Mm-hmm. And then this young couple comes because they're also there to do some scientific research, like studying the kelp that's down in this ice cold water. So they are divers and they go down and you can only go down for like 10 minutes. And it's very interesting. There's a lot of ice cold activities and narwhals and polar bears. It reminded me a lot of Alice Henderson's second book. Yeah. A blizzard of polar bears. Yeah. 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 Which, you know what? One of my friends, my friend Janet just read it and loved it. And she read uh, Alice Henderson's first one and, and said that Henderson is now like, on her list of authors, she'll read whatever comes out next. Good. Well, I would say if you liked the Alice Henderson books, you would like this book. Oh, good. It's another cli-fi. There's a lot about these winds that are starting to come because it's it's current day and where people can actually just freeze in place because there are these sudden winds that come up like in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So there's a lot about science. There's a lot about what is right was thawing this young woman the right thing to do? What happens when science gets involved with nature, even though we know that it requires that for us to make advancements in medicine, etc.? I thought it was really well written. It was fast-paced. I wanted to know what was going to happen. 
Again, it's called Girl in Ice by Erica Ferencik. And this, we have two copies of this book that we're going to give away to two lucky Patreons on April 6th. Yeah, so become a sponsor if you're not already. We'd love to have you join us. And for those of you who already are, thank you. So I read Larry McMurtry's Dead Man's Walk. This is part of the Lonesome Dove series, and I loved it. It's brutal. It's full of hardship. One of those books where it's like, I'm so happy this is over, (laughs) and I didn't want it to end, because you really love the characters. So it takes place in 1842, and it's kind of based on the Texas Rangers, like a real expedition that they did trying to annex Santa Fe from Mexico. It was a property of Mexico at the time. So this is the Texas Republic and the Rangers trying to do that. And the real life expedition was a failure. What's really cool and what kept me going with this book is the two main characters, Gus and Call, Woodrow Call and Augustus McRae are their full names. You meet them as really young men who are just raring to go. They want to join the Rangers. They want to do something important. And they're completely green for the most part. So you're learning and going along with them. So the first thing that they head out for is they're going to, I don't even remember what the first adventure was, but they're out there in the middle of nowhere. And they're being led by a guy, Major Chevalier, who's actually not a major. He's a guy who I think he got kicked out of West Point or something like that after a semester and he bought a uniform and he goes around calling himself major. And so he's trying to lead these people on this expedition and he can't lead his way out of a paper bag, basically. And along the way, they encounter uh, Buffalo Hump, who is a Comanche warrior. He's like the leader who is a fierce man. They dread him because there's no way... At one point, Gus says, we could lick them. If we had more people, we could lick them. And Kyle's like, no. Even if we had more people, no. Like, no one fights like them and him. So that first mission fails. They go back. They regroup. There's this now the big expedition that's being put together, unfortunately, by (laughs) a man named Caleb Cobb, who was a pirate, a maritime pirate. So, like, he was out in a ship being a pirate. And now here he is in the middle of dusty, deserty Texas, trying to lead people on this expedition to annex Santa Fe. And he can't lead in this environment either. So it's really a condemnation of, quote, military leadership and poor leadership to begin with. The second expedition, they start with 200 men. At the end, there's only five left. There's about 40 left when they're captured by the Mexican army. The only probably true military leader in the book, Captain Salazar of the Mexican army, who is a military man and knows his stuff, and he captures about 40 men. And by the time they make it to where they're going, there's only 10 left. And then there's this whole bean counting scene with anyone who has read the book will know what that's about. Dead Man's Walk is the name of a part of the desert that takes days and days to walk through. There are no resources there. So men are just starving to death and dying of thirst and everything. And when they finally get to where they're going, it's actually a leper colony. Mm. So it's kind of like the Wild West meets Downton Abbey, but with lepers. Because there's a woman named Lady Lucinda Carey there. She's of Scottish nobility. And she's this beautiful opera singer. 
but she's a leper. She was also captured by the Mexican army. I'm not really sure about her complete backstory. And I was also thinking, like, what the hell is going on? Like, this story has been, like, so concrete and Western. And then all of a sudden, they're in this leper colony. And this woman is singing beautiful opera. And she's a leper. But I'm not going to give a spoiler about what happens. Because the ending is, like, tremendous. And it is... It is almost like fantastical, and I'll say no more about that. One of the things I appreciated, though, was uh, McMurtry's writing style. It's been a long time since I read Lonesome Dove, the first book, but he has this way of doing word repetition, and he doesn't do it a lot, but I started noticing that he'll say trot and then trotting, deft, deftly, in the same sentence. And so there's this kind of nice rhythm to it. Mm -hmm. Do you plan to read the other ones? I do. I do plan to read them in order of the storyline and not the dates that they were published. So the next one up is called Comanche Moon. That one I'll read this summer because I'm reading one a quarter and there, there are four of them. It's the Tetralogy, as we learned that word not too long ago. And I started watching the TV adaptation. It was a miniseries. Well, I found out quite by accident that you can borrow movies on Hoopla, which I had never done before. So... I think it's available there on three different files, and I watched the first one. So we'll see. I don't know. Johnny Lee Miller, David Arquette, and Jennifer Garner are like the three big names everyone would know now. Oh, so it's a more recent adaptation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the 90s, I guess. I mean, Jennifer Garner's like, you know, 18 or something, you know. So, yeah, Larry McMurtry, Dead Man's Walk. I know whatever I said about the book just didn't do it much justice, but if you're in the mood for a really good Western and you can handle a lot of violence, this would be a great book to read this summer. Right on. I finished By the Book, which was by Jasmine Guillory. This book comes out on May 3rd. I really like Jasmine Guillory. She's written quite a few romances, and her protagonists usually are black career women who are just doing their thing and I think it's wonderful that we have an author that's so prolific writing in that way but this book is a new venture for her it's called a meant to be novel it's from Disney books and this is where they're putting out books where they're rethinking fairy tales with modern day protagonists so by the book is based on the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast This is the second book in the series. The first book was called If the Shoe Fits, (laughs) which was based on Cinderella. And that was written by Julie Murphy of Dumplin' fame. For any of you who've read the book Dumplin', and that was also made into a movie that I really enjoyed. It was on Netflix. Her protagonists are fat, full-figured, whatever you want to call it. And in interviews, Julie Murphy says she got so tired of watching movies and reading books where no one represented her. So she started to write her own, which you go, girl. So this book, by the book, again, is based on Beauty and the Beast. And Izzy is a little lost. She's the main character. She's working in New York. She's an editorial assistant in a publishing house. She's living with her parents. And she and her best friend, Priya, who also works for the publishing house, have to fly out to L.A. to work an event for um, their jobs. The publishing house has given a big advance 
to a young man who's supposed to be writing his memoir. Hmm. He keeps missing his deadlines. They don't hear anything from him. Izzy has been tasked for a year now and sending him emails. She never hears back from him. So she just makes her emails funnier and wittier and she's just having fun with it. And when she's done with this event, her publishing house says, well, why don't you just go knock on his door? He lives here and see if you can get him to get going on this book. Or if he's having writer's block, maybe you can give him a pep talk. So she's really sent there to give him a pep talk. But it's a fairy tale, remember? (laughs) So she ends up moving into the house. They strike a deal that she'll stay there for a month and try to give him a pep talk and help him just figure out how to just start writing. Because he hasn't really started. (laughs) Every time he tries, he can't get anywhere. I remember the story of Beauty and the Beast. My daughter's birthday's in June, and it was always when the new Disney movie came out. So that one was in her era. You know, I think she was like five or something. So I remember seeing it, and I remember, of course, Belle is a skinny white lady in a gown, (laughs) you know, and the Beast is a beast and turns into a handsome prince. So this guy has a temper and kind of yells at her, and she threatens to leave, and she's really feminist, and she's not going to take that shit from him, basically. They end up falling in love, (laughs) as happens in Beauty and the Beast. I really liked it. It's all about books, thus the name by the book. It's all about him trying to write a book. She's trying to write her own book. There's a library, just like in the movie Beauty and the Beast and the story Beauty and the Beast. If you're looking for just a really lighthearted, fun, new take on a fairy tale, much more modern day, it was really enjoyable. And Jasmine Guillory is just a great writer. Again, it's called Buy the Book, and this book comes out on May 3rd. Nice. That sounds good. Well, the next book I read was one that was part of a book club that I wanted to check out back in February. I did not get to the book in time. It's a biography, E.J. Josie, Transformational Leader of the Modern Library Profession by Renata L. Chancellor. This came out in 2020. Josie was an African-American man who became a librarian in the 50s and was very influential in helping to change attitudes towards librarians within the profession and helping to end segregation in library organizations, from libraries themselves to organizations like the American Library Association, which he ended up becoming president of in the 80s. He had a really diverse career path, I guess you could say, for somebody who did get a master's in library science. He worked as a librarian, an administrator in library services. He was a professor of library science. I mentioned he was the president of the American Library Association. And so Renata, writing this book, it came out of her dissertation. She wrote a dissertation on him, and she did get to interview him before he passed away. He lived to be 85. What she does, though, is she looks at his life in light of transformational leadership, as talked about by a man named Bernard Bass, and what the four qualities are of a transformational leader. And I thought that was an interesting approach to somebody's life. This is a really short book. There are other books about Josie out there, uh, but this is a really good one to start with, I thought. I wanted to just share one story, too, from the book. For anybody who has seen 
the movie Hidden Figures. I haven't read the book, so I can't speak to that. But there's a scene where one of the women goes into the library to get a book that she needs to learn how to do computing. She's already a brainiac, but this is going to help her learn how to program these new computers that are coming out from IBM. And she's basically chased out of the library because it's the white library. So, you know, this is common. This was common in the 50s, 60s in the South. And Josie was in Georgia for a while, and they did not accept black people as members of the State Library Association. And even the American Library Association, they allowed black members. But at one of the conventions that the American Library Association had in the South, they didn't realize that their black members wouldn't be allowed in certain places. And so they were learning as an organization how things were in different parts of the country. These local organizations, like the state organizations, wouldn't let African Americans be members. So at the 1964 convention, Josie, as he says, like he basically explodes at one point because the Mississippi Library Association was going to be honored there for their National Library Week activities when actually the Mississippi Library Association had withdrawn from the American Library Association, rather than give membership to Negro librarians. Mm. And so Josie was really, as he said, he's like, I exploded. This is a quote from him. I was seething with anger, for I remembered that three civil rights workers, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner, had been murdered and lay dead and buried somewhere in Mississippi, their bodies not yet discovered. I also remembered that the Mississippi Library Association had withdrawn from ALA rather than give membership to Negro librarians. So he puts in a resolution to nix that award. It's not accepted. He puts in another one. Eventually, it's seconded, and things start to change. Within a couple months, he's allowed to be a member of the Georgia State Library Association, and the ALA really ups their game too in social justice matters. Another thing that Josie did was he was a big mentor. So a lot of librarians who are currently working were mentored by him. They were his protégés, including Dr. Carla Hayden, who's the current librarian of Congress. I know at that time in American life, there were a lot of leaders stepping up to change things. And he was definitely an influential one. So I like that he's contextualized in that way but also shown to be a leader. It wasn't just that he was in the right place at the right time. He was putting himself there to be a change maker. I really enjoyed the biography. Like I said, it's super short. If you want to check it out, I don't think it's readily available. The copy I got was through my university library who got it from the Rhode Island School of Design. So you managed to do a little interlibrary loan hunt. Yeah. Or look him up online, too. I know there's a lot written about him. Again, that was E.J. Josie, Transformational Leader of the Modern Library Profession by Renata L. Chancellor. Well, I had a little bit of a reading slump, and I was getting on a train to go south, and I had started a book the night before, and it just wasn't working for me. So I had a little panic, like, oh, my God, I'm going to be on a six-hour train, and I have nothing to read. So I noticed that Ann Tyler's newest book, French Braid, just released this week. So I gave it a try. I have to admit, it was quite slow for me. So I wasn't sure if I'm just, like I said, just having a reading slump and nothing is grabbing me. But I did forge ahead with it. And Ann Tyler writes really great, family 
fiction books always take place in her beloved Baltimore. Oftentimes, it's a mother who's fleeing her family, which there's a part of that I can appreciate. And in this case, it revolves around the Garrett family. The father is Robin. The mother is Mercy. They have three children, Alice, Lily, and David. It's a multi-generational family saga. Robin is a plumber. He's very satisfied in his life. Mercy, the mother, is very unfulfilled in her life. She's a stay-at-home mom who doesn't really... I mean, I don't want to say this in a judgy way, but she's not really into it. The oldest daughter, Alice, does a lot of the momming and the cooking and the taking care of. And eventually, when the kids are old enough to move out of the house, Mercy finds herself a little apartment that she makes into a painting studio. And she slowly just kind of starts to move out of the house. But they never really talk about it. And she's still around. She's still mom. She still comes over to the family homestead when it's time for a holiday or a meal. So not a whole lot happens. You know, there's not like a plot, but it's just kind of um, a study in family and family dynamics and siblings. And the one thing that happens at the beginning of the book is they go on vacation one time only. They go on a one week vacation and there are things that happen that week of vacation that become family lore as this happens, you know, when you go on vacation, but this family only went on vacation once. And a lot of that has to do with Robin, the father, just like he didn't really understand why people go on vacation, even though he had a good time on the vacation. So that's part of it. The the French braid of the title is kind of a metaphor for family. A French braid is one of those complicated, twisty braids. And when you undo the French braid, your hair is crimped. So that's all a metaphor for family and the complexity of family and kind of the tangled, wavy way that family develops and grandchildren come and the relationships that they have. So again, not a lot happens per se, but her writing is so good. And the whole thing about unfulfilled mothers is always fascinating to me. So I did stick with it to the end. It sounds like a a little bit part fantasy for a woman who might read that who was in a similar situation, maybe not satisfied. Am I reading? Am I hearing things? You mean like fantasizing about having a different life? Like being able to do that, like have their own little studio somewhere that they can retreat to. And very Ann Tyler. (laughs) The mothers often end up fleeing, but not all the way, which I think is a fantasy that a lot of women have at different points as they're mothering which is a lot of work and not always what you think it's going to be. So I thought it was good. It wasn't in some ways as propulsive as I find some of her novels, but I did enjoy it in the end. Again, it's called French Braid and is available now. Okay, so after the murder and racial strife and hardship of being a Texas Ranger, I had a wonderful surprise come in the mail from our listener Deb in Chicago, she sent me a copy of Sudan, Stories and Pictures by Megan Padalecki. And this is a story of a rhinoceros. Let me see this. I'm trying to show Emily. So this is a little rhinoceros. He's one of a kind. Here he is. He's in the savanna. He's all alone. He's looking at all these other tribes of animals who are together. You know, the elephants, the wild boars and giraffes. Everyone has somebody and he's alone and he's feeling pretty sad. 
Did I mention this is a picture book? It's a picture book. <laughs> <laughs> and then along comes this creature who speaks just like he does and looks very much like him. And it's a little pretend friend, I think, a fellow rhinoceros. What makes me think it's a pretend friend is that it has wings, <laughs> like an angel almost. But they hang out together and they do things together. And the little rhino starts to gain confidence. And then he's running and he's running and he's doing his own thing. He starts to see that the world is really a big place and that he has a place in it. And then as he's doing that, his pretend friend is no longer with him. Mm. She says at one point, I'll be with you for as long as you need me. So as he gains confidence and maturity, she's no longer there. And what's kind of cool is he comes across this little bird and uh, the little bird says, do you need a friend? And they become friends. The last picture is a picture of the rhino with the little bird on his back. And then at the very end, the author gives a little bit of explanation about how she drew the scenes about the rhino and about these little birds. So it's the red-billed oxpecker who is a perching bird that are great friends of the rhinos because they pick the ticks off of them Mm -hmm. and eat the bugs that are on rhinos. And the rhino that this is inspired by was the last male northern white rhinoceros who passed away in 2018. So that rhino inspired the author as well as her godson, Mosley, who is a French bulldog. (laughs) So it's a really cute story. Deb said her grandkid loves it and is always saying, I want Dan, Dan, you know, Sudan. And the author is, um, as I said, Megan Padalecki. And her brother is an actor who was on... Gilmore Girls, and then also Supernatural, which is a show I haven't watched. But he played Rory's boyfriend. I remember. Yeah. He's the tall one. And I just remember that one scene where he's, Rory's being really cranky and distant and everything. And he's trying to make her happy. And he's like, come on, let's go. Let's go to a bookstore. And I'll just watch you browse for eight hours. (laughs) I mean, he's so sincere, you know. Um, But yeah, so that's the author's brother. And she's written two other books as well. So I look forward to checking those out. This book just came out. It has a 2022 copyright. Again, the title is Sudan, Stories and Pictures by Megan Padalecki. And thank you again, Deb, for sending this to me. It was perfect timing. I really enjoyed it. All right, Emily. So tell us, I know you went on some serious biblio adventuring. I did. I met my son Jacob down in DC. Our main purpose there was to get him a suit because I haven't announced this on the podcast, but he's getting married. Yay. Yeah. So we met there. He had to be down there for some meetings. And I said, well, let me meet, just meet you there and we'll go suit shopping. And so um, sadly, the point of wasn't for me to go book shopping and go around biblio adventuring, <laughs> but I did get to sneak a little in. We were staying in DuPont Circle, so the two bookstores that were right there were Second Story Books, which is a really great used bookstore. It's been there a long time, well curated, very well organized, which I really appreciate in a used bookstore. And then around the corner is Kramer's Books, which is one of my all-time favorites. I used to go there when I would visit D.C. back in the 90s. It has a fantastic restaurant. It's a wonderful indie bookstore. It was recently sold 
So I know there's new owners and there was a lot of fear that something was going to change with it. It's still there. It's still beautiful. So I shopped at both of those. We hopped on the Metro and went up to Tacoma Park, Maryland, and came across Busboys and Poets, which was another combination restaurant and bookstore. And when Chris was posting, I sent her my pictures and Chris posted on social media, which was great. She found a bunch of history about those bookstores because there was a lot of Langston Hughes memorabilia, which I didn't understand. Yeah. And so the name was inspired by him that before his poetry really took off, he was working as a busboy. So that's how it got its name. And they're, all, they're like seven or eight locations throughout the metro DC area. Yeah, which I didn't know. This one was beautiful. It was really so many great books. And I liked how they had things kind of set up thematically, which some bookstores do more of than others, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I also stopped at Jenny Bick Custom Journals, which I had never seen this store before. Beautiful selection of pens, cards, journals. They had um, a special series of journals that she makes that are made out of leather and then if you bought a leather-bound journal, you could get it engraved. So we did that as a gift for Jacobs. Well, maybe I should say for my future daughter-in-law. Yeah. I've never said that out loud. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> well, you know, Jacob, of course, you wouldn't be you if you weren't going to bookstores. But yeah. Right. Yeah. He was very tolerant, as my kids always are. Usually it's because food was involved for him, so he couldn't <laughs> complain. And then on the last day, it was hilarious because the hotel we were staying in offered free bikes. And they brought these bikes out. And as the gentleman caller said when he saw the pictures, hey, the 80s is calling. Because <laughs> these bikes were, they'd seen some wear. And they only would go into one gear. Jacob's was a very low gear. Mine was a very high gear. <laughs> So I pedaled slowly, he pedaled fast, we went to a restaurant, but on the way back, we came across this beautiful little free library. It was a memorial library to Andre Rowe Ousley, who died at the age of 27. I did a little research, it looked like he was someone who was experiencing homelessness and passed away, which is very sad. Obviously, somebody really loved him. Either that or maybe he lived in this neighborhood. I couldn't get any more information. But they had, you know, these beautiful statues all around it that were book themed. And there was even solar power keeping the twinkly lights lit 24 seven. That's great. Yeah, it was a very sweet little free library. So I was glad that we just happened upon it so, yeah and it was a pretty yeah. large one too oh yeah i mean yeah. the original was just one little small one and then they added an, a whole section if you check out our social media we have pictures of it there so it was a really good time we had some good mom sun time and also some good gallivanting to bookstores awesome <laughs> how about nice. you well i went to the um the book barn in niantic I went looking for a copy of Louise Erdrich's The Plague of Doves and basically came home with a passel of Willa Cather books. <laughs> <laughs> they had a lot of Louise Erdrich there, but not the one that I was looking for. Okay. So that's a big bookstore, folks. So yeah. that's too bad that you couldn't find it. Yeah. And I went to two locations. They have like three or four locations mm -hmm. in town. So mm -hmm. yeah, but that's okay. I got a copy from the library. So do you have any upcoming jaunts on the books? With you, I do. Yeah. 
We're going to go to Savoy Bookshop and Cafe in Westerly, Rhode Island, April 10th. Andrea Wang is going to be there. Yes, she's the author of Watercress, which is a picture book that has been winning lots of awards. It's a beautiful book, beautiful story. Highly recommend it. Both of us do. Yeah. And it's going to be great to see her. And it's going to be wonderful for Emily to reconnect with her. Yeah, we went to school together. We grew up together. She did move out of Yellow Springs. I want to say, I'm going to confirm this with her when we see her, I think at the start of high school. Okay. Yeah. And the book Watercrest actually is about her time growing up in rural Ohio which is Yellow Springs. Yeah. And she's going to be there leading story time. So that should be really fun for us to see. I think she'll read the book aloud and maybe answer some questions with the kids. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I haven't been to a story time in ages. Neither have I. I've seen some at libraries and I always enjoy that. So yeah. And then we also are hoping to get well, not hoping we're planning to get on the train to New York Go to the Morgan Library. Yes. So this will be our first venture together back to the city since, you know, 2020. 2020. Yeah, yeah early 2020. Yeah. They have a wonderful new exhibit about Gwendolyn Brooks that is the main thing we're going there to see. Yeah. And reminder that Chris on episode 56 mm-hmm. got to see Gwendolyn Brooks' statue that she talked about on episode 56 in Chicago. Yeah, it was a, recently unveiled back then. I'm not sure how many years ago that was, but it's a wonderful statue basically of her head. Yeah. So we're at some point going to be reading her novel, Maud Martha, at some point this summer, if you want to get a copy of that. She's mainly known as a poet. But right. she did write a novel. That's a novel. Yeah. And um, we're going to do a buddy read. So stay tuned for that. And then we wanted to remind people, longtime listeners know that Chris and I met at Booktopia, which were at the time, Ann and Michael of Books on the Nightstand, Infamy, <laughs> used to do these book events with authors all over the country at independent bookstores. They no longer do that. The original was at the Northshire bookstore up in Manchester, Vermont. And now the bookstore itself does a booktopia once a year. They didn't have it the last two years due to COVID, but it's coming back. Woohoo! So May 6th and 7th at Northshire Bookstore in Manchester, we checked in with Daffod. There are still tickets available. Go to their website. We'll put that in the show notes. I'm going to briefly read to you. The authors that are going to be there, the way it works is there are independent sessions where you can meet with the authors. And then on Saturday evening, open to the public in the bookstore, there's an evening event where all the authors speak that you don't have to pay anything to join. And then they sign books afterwards. It's a really fun event. Yeah, it really is. I think they they each speak for 10 or 15 minutes. So you get a really great introduction to the author if you've never met them before and their latest book. So it's always a fun event. Right. But if you have joined Booktopia and paid for the ticket, you have spent two days with these authors and learning more about them as well. So the authors that are coming are Brendan Slocum, who wrote The Violin Conspiracy, Hernan Diaz, that wrote Trust, Dahlia Azim, Country of Origin, Jane Peck, The Verifiers, Ben Shattuck, Six Walks in the Footsteps of Henry David Thoreau, Courtney Mom, The Year of the Horses, a memoir. Bill Rohrbach, Lucky Turtle. He's a Booktopian alum. He's been there before. David Wright Falade, Black Cloud Rising. 
and Craig Poplar's The Publisher of Tin House Books, which is something new they started a few years ago, I think, where they actually bring in a publisher or someone kind of um, Indus- industry. Right? Yeah, industry yeah. professional. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And Tin House Books is fantastic. <sighs> they are definitely one of my favorite houses. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy their books. And we're definitely going to go Saturday night. We're not sure yet if we're going to join in for the full two-day event just because of school, et cetera. Yeah, that's going to be like the last weekend of school for me. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, the next week is the last week of school. I guess it's a better way of saying that. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, Emily, that is a lot of information we just shared. All going to be in the show notes, y'all. Put those burning pens down. There's uh, one more category here, category one more segment, which is upcoming reads. Yes. So we're going to make a big announcement. It's our next read along. Yes. Our second quarter read along. Again, our theme this year is indigenous authors. And we've decided to read a very slim novel called Two Old Women, an Alaska legend of betrayal, courage and survival by Velma Wallace. This was originally published... It's an oldie in 1993. And, you know, we hearkened back that when we first started doing read-alongs, we did a lot of books that were published a while ago. We've done a real mix, and we kind of wanted to do something from back in the day. Yeah, something that's been around a bit. And uh, it's such a great story, and the theme of old women kind of fits with where we're headed in our lives, hopefully, knock on wood. And uh, we thought our readers would enjoy this one as well. Yeah, so the Zoom discussion for this is going to be on May 15th, Sunday, May 15th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Send us an email at bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to be in that discussion. This will be in the show notes. We're going to record our discussion of it on May 18th, and it will be part of episode 156 on May 24th. Yeah, so if you can't participate in the zoom discussion that we'll have but you still have questions or things that you want us to talk about just send us an email we're happy to discuss your question or whatever it is you want us to talk about the book and there'll be a good reads thread as always that will be there forever (laughs) (laughs) so i also have mod martha which we already talked about by gwendolyn brooks since we're going to be going to that exhibit and then i got out of the library a book called exquisite The Poetry and Life of Gwendolyn Brooks by Suzanne Slade, illustrated by Cozy A. Cabrera. And this is a children's biography of Gwendolyn Brooks. Nice. A picture book. Picture book. So cool. It's a Robert E. Seibert honor book. So I'm really excited. We've talked about how kids' biographies sometimes are a great way to learn something quickly. Yes. I'm looking forward to that. Very cool. Well, and I'll be reading... The Plague of Doves by Louise Erdrich, which I just picked up on the way here. It's our friend Colleen's birthday book discussion. She started this tradition. But yeah, so she has, you know, a group of friends getting together over Zoom to discuss a book for her birthday. Lovely. Yeah. And then lastly, out now, remember, we've talked about that books that we've mentioned that we've read that aren't out. We're reading them as arcs. We're going to try to remind you when they're published. Out now is The Echoes by Jess Montgomery actually publishes the day this episode drops. This is the fourth book in the Kinship series, and she will be an upcoming author spotlight. And then Her Last Affair by John Searles is out now. 
cool. Yeah. And coming up next is our interview with Kathleen Stone, the author of They Called Us Girls, Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men. And that book is available now as well. And very appropriate for Women's History Month. Absolutely. Enjoy our conversation with Kathleen. We're thrilled to welcome Kathleen Courtney Stone to the podcast. Kathleen is the co-founder of Book Lab, a literary salon in Boston that longtime listeners will remember from our conversation with Whitney Scherer on episode 130. We can't wait to dig into talking with Kathleen about her new book, They Called Us Girls, Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men. But first, we'd like to offer a bit of biography on the biographer. Kathleen studied art history at Oberlin College and earned her law degree at Boston University School of Law. As a lawyer, she was a law clerk to a federal district court judge, a litigation partner in a law firm, senior counsel in a financial institution, and she worked as a solo practitioner. Kathleen taught seminars on American law in six foreign countries as a Fulbright senior specialist and through the Center for International Legal Studies. We know that lawyers write a lot, so Kathleen is no stranger to the keyboard or pen and paper. But in recent years, Kathleen has turned her focus to different types of writing. She went back to school and earned an MFA from Bennington College. Kathleen's writing has appeared in the pages of the LA Review of Books, Plowshares, and the Writer's Chronicle, to name a few. They Call This Girls is Kathleen's first book, and we are so excited to talk with her about this group biography of seven extraordinary women. Welcome, Kathleen. Oh, thank you. It's just wonderful to be with you. Kathleen, we're so excited to have you here during Women's History Month. It somehow seems so appropriate. Can you tell us a little bit, just a quick overview about your book? Yes, and it it certainly does fit into the genre of women's history. It's a collection of biographical portraits of seven women. Obviously, each one is an individual, but they have some shared similarities in that they all entered adult professional life in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, so mid-century. And they all had careers in professions where women were then in a tiny minority. And at the same time, cultural expectations were that women should stay home, or if they were in the paid workforce, not to take men's jobs. But of course, that's exactly what they did. They went into male-dominated professions. The question that propelled me into writing the book was, why? Why did they do that? Where did that ambition come from, and how did they pull it off? And I interviewed the women when they were in their 80s and 90s, and we talked about their lives and the answers to my questions of where that ambition came from. Well, and I, we really enjoyed the, the early inspiration for you Um, And your own curiosity as an eight-year-old looking through your dad's yearbook um, from his law school and seeing just, you know, a handful of women in the pages of all the portraits there of the graduates. And just I we that the through line throughout your book as you talk about these women was really wonderful to see where your curiosity came from. Yes. I've never seen a biography that, that that really delves that deeply into it and shares so much of uh, the biographer's own experience. Well, that was a little bit of an innovation to include some of my own story in the book. Um, I, I very much wanted to keep the focus on these seven women, not on myself. And it's not at all a memoir, 
but it is a combination of their voices and my own reflections. And as you point out, I do begin in the introduction with picturing myself as I was when I was eight years old on a bored Sunday afternoon, pulling books off the bookshelf, my father's books off the bookshelf, and flipping through and seeing pictures of just a handful of women from his class in law school, which he graduated in 1950, um, and wondering about who, who are these women? Because I knew that they were unusual, not just because there are only a handful of them in the book, but because of what I saw around me growing up. In my neighborhood, most of the women were like my mother, which was home with the children. So I, I knew that there were somewhere out there in the world, there were women who were in an office like my father, but I fantasized about what might have made them make that decision for their lives. And in fact, I even went, sounds sort of crazy now, but as a girl, I thought there was some secret ingredient. That doesn't sound crazy to me because I've wondered, I, I feel like when I opened your book, you answered a question that I've been asking myself for years, which is why do some women, particularly of that generation, why did they achieve higher levels in a profession? Because a lot of women that age who did get educated, which you point out is one of the core themes with these women, they were told they could be secretaries or teachers. Those were the options available to them. These seven women that you talk about are not that. So can you talk about who they are, just briefly how you chose these seven and what sets them apart? Why didn't they become secretaries and teachers? Not that there's anything wrong with that. We're grateful for those professions, but that was really what was available to women of that generation. Right. Um, it, it very much was what was available. And by that time in the middle of the 20th century, teaching, at least in the elementary grades, secretarial work and nursing were really professional careers that were dominated by women primarily. So I was interested in women who went into different professional fields, knowing full well that they would be in a very small minority and they would get essentially no support from other women because there weren't any other women um, in their office or their lab or wherever they were working. The seven women you chose, you said specifically you didn't want to talk about famous people, that you even had an opportunity to interview some famous people. But how did you choose these seven well, my first criterion was age. I was looking for women who are of my parents' generation. And I ended up with women, I think the earliest birth date was 1913, and the latest one was 1932. So essentially an overlap with my parents' age. And they all began their careers in this mid-20th century period, which turned out to have some really interesting features about it as a time period in women's history. The second criterion after age was the women had gone into a male-dominated profession, not the ones where women were dominant. So that had me looking at women who were in professions like law, medicine, science, executive leadership. I also wanted to understand the influence of race and ethnicity on women's experiences in those professions. So I made some effort to have a racially and ethnically diverse pool, small pool, but nonetheless diversity within the pool. And then you mentioned the fact that I was looking for women who weren't famous, as I do point out in the book. And that is because I was concerned that if I had one or two famous women Everybody would be reading those biographies and not thinking about the others. And one of them sort of all on equal footing in terms of fame. 
and so that the, each story would have sort of equal weight in the whole. So those were really my guiding criterion. And then who I could have access to and who was willing to talk to me. And I, because I was interviewing women who were in their 80s and 90s, some people just weren't available. They perhaps had passed away or just were not in a state of mind where they could really be a great interview. Yeah, I really enjoyed the interview. Um, the first woman in the book, uh, listeners, is, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce her name correctly, but um, Dalov Ipkar? Is that how you? Right, yes. Really well-known artist, children's book illustrator and writer. And I was really struck with her story on how some of the other women, as Emily mentioned, you know, it was higher education uh, that helped them get a world that were required for some of the professions that they were entering. And um, she did not have a degree. She left college after a year. But she, her parents were both famous artists. And so those were her credentials in a way that she grew up with artists who helped her express herself. And I was really struck by how when she was first dating her soon-to-be husband, that her father was upset that the man wasn't an artist because he expected her to marry an artist like her parents were. But one of the things that Davlov saw was that her mom always was second string to her father and that her father's career came first in so many ways, whether it was because of the child rearing, even though he did help some, but there were the social expectations that it was the man who was the greater artist and that she didn't want that in a relationship. So she was thinking, like, I will be the only artist in this relationship. And can you speak to that a little bit about the importance of the partner that these women chose? Oh, tremendously important. I think we all know that from our own lives as well. And, of course, that point about Dalov choosing to marry a man who had been trained as an accountant, although he was no longer working as an accountant, um, instead of an artist, that was, that's my own take, is one factor in her decision to marry him. But nonetheless, she, she did, and she was the only artist in the family. And she was the one who had the greater fame to the extent that she was famous at all. She was the public-facing one in that way. Several of the women were divorced. I think everyone got married, several divorced and one that I'll talk about specifically was Cordelia Hood. She was an intelligence officer during World War II for the Office of Strategic Services, and then after the war for Central Intelligence Agency. She met her husband right at the end of the war. He had been in military intelligence, and they were married back in the States, and then they returned to Europe, where the CIA was just getting started and they were in Vienna, where he eventually became chief of station, which was a really important position at the time because Vienna was really the, a hub of refugees and spies and former spies and would-be spies. There was just all kinds of activity going on. And the Cold War was, of course, heating up at that time. They both had a background in intelligence, but he was the one who was able to parlay it into very high levels within the CIA. At that time, no woman was in the executive top layers of the CIA. Cordelia went as far as she could, and she was very highly regarded within the agency. But there really was more than just a glass ceiling, a brick ceiling, I would say. Couldn't get past it. And the other thing, and as she confessed to me, is that 
the two of them never really had a heart to heart about whose career would take precedence. It was just assumed that his would. And she went on a contract basis with the CIA so that she would be free to move with him whenever he was got a new posting. So she continued working on a contract basis. He was always going on to an, a new higher level within the agency. Uh, so that relationship, for that reason and probably for some others, ended in divorce. On the other hand, a shiny example of a great partnership was Mildred Dresselhaus. She was a scientist who was the first female tenured full professor at MIT and very well known within the scientific community. Her husband was also a physicist. He was a little bit senior to her. She met him when she was in graduate school, and he was already had already gotten his PhD and was teaching. But he was completely supportive of her career, suggested some research angles that she pursued that turned out to be very productive for her career. And then when she became a professor, he took up probably more than 50% of the child rearing and home responsibilities. They had four children, four young children, and he just jumped right in and did whatever needed to be done at home. And they also had childcare during the day when they were both at work. Um, but she had a completely different experience with her husband who was fully invested in her career. Yeah, that's great. I know you talk about, or at least you mentioned the the fact that most of the women had some type of help, you know, if not a, a very supportive partner, then hired help to help with the child rearing. Yes, I think, I think of those who had children, the only one who didn't have child care was Della Bibcar. As an artist living in rural Maine, she had she could do her artwork when the kids were in school and um, help with the vegetable gardening and the haying but get her artwork done. All the other women did have paid help. Yeah, I couldn't help but to think about that when you're, especially in the epilogue, you were talking about that, the child care and the importance of child care for these women and how we've just seen this mass, you know, leaving the workforce, this mass exodus of women who in large part had to do that because of what was happening with the pandemic and lack of child care. So it's still, of course, an important issue for women in their careers. It is. And I don't, one of the sources I mentioned in the book is an economist named Claudia Golden. And I cite her for work that she had done earlier. But she, recently she's come out with publication about what she calls greedy jobs, meaning jobs that really take up all of your waking hours. And of, and of course, with computers and cell phones and all kinds of connectedness, it's those jobs are all, all the more numerous than they used to be. But in realistic terms, in a family, somebody needs to be paying attention to the kids. Somebody needs to be doing the grocery shopping and the cooking. And when it's the man who has the so-called greedy job and is always on for work purposes, it's the woman who typically does more of the household stuff. But then the, the even if she's working, the implication, though, is that she will have the less prestigious, less well-paid, less authoritative job. And so that even if she's well-educated and in a professional field, there's still that gap. And often it's a money gap. And, you know, in the pandemic, if one person had to stay home because the kids were being homeschooled, or at least on Zoom, it's would make sense for the one with the less 
well-paying job to be the one to stay home. And of course, that was often the woman. So I think that combined with the pandemic has big implications for women in the workplace. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the framing of your book, you know, talking about this time period um, between when women did get the vote until the 60s when another wave of feminism came it was kind of like a, uh, I guess, mini dark ages for women in some ways with that, that social expectation that they would be homemakers. And we know that, you know, class issues, middle class women, that was the expectation for them. Um, but one of the stories, too, even that one of the women had a job and then her husband gets hired at the same place and then they just quit paying her because the assumption was that the man was the one who took care of the family I was just thinking about those years, those decades, and I've looked at my own life and my own interests, and I used to think, like, I'll never be interested in that time period or this time period. And I've always been surprised that I'm drawn to different time periods that I never thought I would really find all that interesting. And um, you definitely kind of blew that cap off for me by looking at this generation of women and the time period that they grew up in and those expectations. And I just really appreciate that. And I'm wondering, when you were interviewing the women, was it hard to get them to start talking? Mostly no. We had very fluid conversations. With one woman, um, she frankly was too humble, too modest about her own accomplishments. I had approached her, explained what I was doing, And she said, well, I don't fit in your box. I wasn't a lawyer or a doctor. I said, I don't care. I'm not that narrow. I'm really trying to broaden my perspective here. And I do want to talk to you. And then, of course, once we started talking, she was very gregarious. And I think I even say in the book, she came over to my house, actually, for the first interview. And I had put out a little spread of snacks and cold water um, we didn't touch a thing. We were so busy talking. <laughs> I was going to ask you if there was anything that really surprised you. I'm pausing because I'm thinking, what surprised me? There's a couple of things. One was they all were roughly contemporaneous. So they all were young adults, at least by the time of World War II. But the war had very different impacts on different women, um, either because of slightly different age or their circumstances or whether their husbands went off to the war or not. Um, none of these women were, was in the military. So it was always a question of the husbands going into the military. So that was just at least an interesting feature that at such a pivotal event that they all lived through either did or didn't have an effect depending on various circumstances. Something else that surprised me, and not so much in talking to them, but in the historical research that I did to, to get the right context to present their lives in, was what was going on during that 50-year period between 1920 and 1970. Leading up to 1920, there had been a big surge of women, more and more women going to college, going into graduate school, and going into professional jobs. And that was hand-in-hand with the suffrage movement. And then once the 19th Amendment passed in 1920 and the sort of collective energy that had gone into getting the vote for women dissipated a little bit because of the success, things started to plateau. The number of women going into professional work in 1920 was essentially unchanged until 1970 when there was another big surge. And that was a sort of a statistical point that I had not really appreciated 
um, until I did this research. And so th- that was surprising and very interesting to me. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that was surprising about these particular women. Well, I think it's a cool trend that now if you look at the number of women in colleges, they've surpassed men. Absolutely, yes. And possibly they're on a par and possibly have slightly surpassed men in law school as well. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go, ladies. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, when we were uh, emailing back and forth with Kathleen, uh, Janice Nomura's book came up, The Doctor's Blackwell. And, you know, Kathleen, you said that the women that you're interviewing were, you know, the generation or two after the Blackwell sisters. And it's really great to see that kind of thread continue. What was it about the 60s and 70s that broke things open for these women? Did they did they personally talk about it? Yes, a couple of them did. Mildred Dresselhaus was already a professor at MIT by that time, but there was a small minority of women students at MIT. But because there was such a surge of interest in women's rights at that time, uh, the school put together a so-called women's forum, where there was mentoring and breakout groups and discussions and support systems for women within MIT. And she became involved in that. So for her, I think the 1970s pulled her into that work as a way to support other women, young budding scientists who happened to be women. Although she certainly taught men and women, but the Women's Forum was a particular vehicle for her to support other women. Another woman who mentioned it was uh, Dr. Muriel Petioni. She was a physician in Harlem, and in the mid-1970s, she began a medical society for Black women physicians in the New York metropolitan area. She said that she was, by that time, she was fairly well-known in the Black medical community, and she was getting calls from hospitals and other people who were hiring, looking for black women doctors to hire. Um, and as she said, affirmative action had come in so that there was a real effort to broaden the hiring criteria. She wanted to help connect all these various women who could potentially get these jobs with the sources. So she started this medical society, which is really a networking society. It's still going on and awards a scholarship to um, a young doctor every year. So for her, the 70s was a way for her to, she always gave back. She was always very involved with community work, both within Harlem and really on a national level. But the 70s gave her an opportunity to really focus in on young Black women doctors and how she could contribute to them. Yeah, that's really great. Women supporting other women, right? That's a lot of how it happens. Yeah. I want to ask a, a totally different question about a physical question about the book. There are beautiful photographs in the book. And we spoke to another biographer, and it was news to me that when you get a book contract, sometimes they're very specific about the number of pictures you can have in a book. Did you have any restrictions like that? And how did you go about getting the photographs and choosing them? I did not. I have any restrictions. I had a, I've got a very small independent press called Kinren Press, out of Pennsylvania. They've just been terrific. There was no restriction on the number of photographs I could have. I went about getting them mostly by asking family members, sometimes the women themselves, but also their when I would expand my research 
and talked to family members. And particularly in some cases after the woman had passed away, um, I got the photographs that way. People rated their family albums and albums and shared, yeah, they're really them. you can tell. I mean, they're really warm. Some of them, you know, that's really beautiful. Yeah. What I didn't know was going to happen. Or I should have, but was then going to get. I had to get permission. If the photographer, if we knew who the photographer was, I would have to get that permission. But also, everyone photographed oh, who, who shows up in the. Photo. Right. I had to get permissions, even. Um, I mean, for instance, I mentioned that Mildred Bresselhaus had four kids. Well, there's a picture of her with her four children, all of whom are now adults, and I had to get permission from each one. A whole other layer to your research, huh? (laughs) (laughs) But again, the family members really stepped up and were very helpful and helped expedite it all with email. Yeah, that's very helpful. So talking about the physical aspect of the book, this, um, the intermezzo, uh, that we mentioned early on in the book, how you insert some of your own reflections. Uh, was there any pushback to that idea um, with your editor or publisher? Or have you gotten much feedback about that uh, aspect of this joint biography or group biography, I should say? No, I, again, my publisher was only supportive, no pushback. It's funny that you mentioned that I was initially was very intent on having my focus be on just the women. And I started writing in a very distanced third-party way. But my, I wasn't in the book at all. And then when I was at Bennington getting my MFA, that's where I got pushback from both students and teachers who wanted me to write more personally. Mm. So I began introducing myself maybe in the interview scene. You know, I drove to the woman's house and I sat down in her living room and then we began talking. I would go that far. And then I, I continued getting advice from my Bennington cohort to really make it more personal. And as I thought about the reasons that I was talking to these women, which is really to find out how they, where their ambition came from and how they made sense of the world around them, I realized that that's really a universal quest. That we all have to figure out what the world is and how we fit into it. And we do that when we're young. And I realized that my story to the, the little bit that I have in there would speak to that sort of universal quest as well. And sometimes when people have read the book and then they tell me what they think, they often talk about, oh, I'm so glad you said that about yourself or whatever it is that I have written. I've mostly gotten, po- really only gotten positive feedback on that aspect of the book. That's great. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I felt like I was getting to know you and that you were telling the story to me in a bit more personal way than a traditional biography. Oh, great. Thank you very much. Glad to hear it. Yeah, I agree. And it, it definitely, it was braided in a really interesting way because the intermezzo is, you know, after each chapter, but yet you also have the introduction and the epilogue. I felt like it really drew you through the book. And your story and your comments were really important. So thank you for doing that. It felt really brave to me when I was reading it. Like, this is unusual. Sometimes biographies are just pure biography, you know, and I really enjoyed that it was, I mean, I I hesitate to say memoir because I don't think that's how you would necessarily categorize it, but it is a really interesting historical text in that way. Well, thanks. Sometimes when we ask this question, I feel terrible because I feel like you just wrote a book and here you are talking about it. And we want to ask you what you're working on next. If you're not working on anything, that's fine. But if you are, we're nosy. (laughs) (laughs) Not 
nosy? You're interested conversationalists. <laughs> well, the book came out two weeks ago, and I've really been busy with the launch. It's been exciting, exhilarating, and exhausting, all of that. I very soon, though, do plan to get back to doing art reviews and book reviews, which I like to do both. And in fact, I have a book review that will be coming out in May. I haven't read the book yet, but I will starting in April. <laughs> but in terms of women's history, I've spent so much time now researching and thinking. I want to continue doing at least essays about women and women's place in history and women's place in contemporary society. And in terms of another book, I have a very rudimentary idea that's really too too rudimentary to share but if i do it, it it'll be a slice of contemporary society oh great very cool wonderful yeah but again it would it would involve talking to other people interviewing them and doing research which is what this was which was totally fun for me yeah it shows in the book thank yeah. you so much for writing this book we were thrilled to learn of it it's a wonderful book to read for women's history month and on because here at the Book Cougars, we think every month should be Women's History Month. So, yes. yes, indeed. And it's a good book, too, I think, for younger readers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's, it's classified as an adult level book, isn't it? Yes. I think like it, it'd be great for young adults as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. I, I agree with you. I, I certainly I would love to see it in high school libraries as well as college libraries. All right, listeners, you heard that. So request it at your libraries and definitely get a copy for yourself and a, a loved one because we both really enjoyed it. Yeah, and high school libraries love to get donations as well. So order one for yourself and order one for your local high school. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Thank you to both of you. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> this episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.